William Wilberforce was a British parliamentician that lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He was a strong Christian who perhaps most famously is known for leading the charge on ending the British slave trade in 1807. It was a process that took <clears throat> 20 years to accomplish. In so doing, the battle that he waged was weary upon his heart, and he would write in one of his diaries, he would write in his diary, that one day on the way home from Hyde Park, he would read Psalm 119, and the Lord would use this psalm on his walk home to comfort him and to steady him in the charge that God had set before him. Psalm 119. That's the text that we are going to walk through for the next several weeks together. Now, we could preach this text in such a way that we go through topically, because the similar themes come up repeatedly again and again and again. Themes of serious trial, themes of grief and sadness and being overwhelmed, and themes of dullness and loneliness, themes of excitement and victory. Every kind of season of life is mentioned in Psalm 119, in this incredible Hebrew poetry. Now, Hebrew poetry is contained in most, and actually several psalms. It's not absolutely unusual or unique to Psalm 119 to have an intentional acronym for the psalm, to all start with the same letter. But what is unique is to have a certain blend of themes in this section of 22 strophes. A strophe is a paragraph of poetry. And the writer has done so in such a way to weave the themes throughout the letter. Just like in our own lives, every new season has its own little set of what it means to mourn, its own set of what it means to be comforted, to be in victory and in joy. Every new season has its own unique understanding of what those things are. And the psalmist, by God's glory in this scripture for us, gives us an absolute jewel to grasp in our present season of life as a congregation of brothers and sisters in Christ who are at the entire spectrum of all of those seasons of life. Here we gather together in Psalm 119 to consume this Word of God. Our hope in this series is that we would pray consistently and repeatedly, Lord, before you, I don't want to be a man. I don't want to be a woman who lives by bread alone, but I want to live truly by every word of yours. Would you shape me with that hunger? Would you use whatever season necessary to shape me to that greater to desire to know you by your word that you've given? As we come to our text, as we go through, just like any good poetry, it causes you to reflect and to ask questions. The first question that Aleph, the first eight verses does for us, is it causes us to ask the question, how can I, as a, as a sinful man or sinful woman, how can I live with an undivided heart? How can I live with an undivided heart upon the Lord my God? The psalm writer gives us a response with two pillars to this deep question we must ask, Lord, how can I live with an undivided heart? And the psalmist answers us. So open your text, if you would, to Psalm 119, as we discover first and foremost that the undivided heart seeks the Lord by His Scripture, not simply the knowledge of Scripture. The undivided heart seeks the Lord by His Scripture, not simply the knowledge of Scripture. To divorce Yahweh, the Lord, from 
Scripture is to do what is unnatural and shouldn't be done. It would be like chopping off a, a, a torso from a trunk. We know the Lord by His Scriptures. Not outside of the Scripture, but through His Scripture. He's made Himself known to us. So the undivided heart seeks the Lord by His Scripture. And a, and, a, and a clear contrast is made that I cannot say, I know the Lord and want him to know Him and be blessed by Him and know Him personally, but I really don't care for His Word. That statement in Psalm 119 is not possible. And on the opposite side is true. Is I love to read His Word. I love to study His Word. But I'm really not that keen on a relationship or walking out the Scriptures in my life and my lips. Psalm 119 makes abundantly clear is we know the Lord through His Word. It is the gift for us to anchor us in our lives. And so this first truth, this first pillar for us is how do we live with an undivided heart has two different truths to understand it well. Two components, we might say. First, in verse 1 through 2, we must believe that true blessing, true blessing, is available to all who will follow after the Lord. True blessing is available to all who will follow after the Lord. And he begins it, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. The very first question we ask is about the very first word of verse 1 and 2. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? What's that mean? You know where I see the word blessed most often? It's on social media. It usually involves a view, a picture of the ocean with two legs <laughs> and a beautiful sunset with the hashtag blessed. If we import that definition of what it means to be blessed into Psalm 119, we will have a very distorted view of God. Because we'll naturally look at our lives and say, Lord, I look at my life and I sure don't feel that way. My circumstances sure don't look like that. So either A, you either don't exist, or B, you sure don't like me. A false view of what it means to be blessed, an incorrect definition. Yes, a part of blessing is receiving the, the unearned kindness of God. But blessing in the way that the psalmist uses it and the Lord uses it is so much deeper and so much sweeter. So I want to take a moment to give us a, a, a very brief survey of what it means to be blessed according to the Scriptures. It's a word that's used hundreds of times throughout from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, I won't give you time to flip there. That's not a personal challenge. You really, you're not going to win this. You're not going to be able to catch up with me. But you can write down the references if you'd like a, a little bit later to look up. The first to the very beginning in Genesis 1. If you begin your Bible challenge and read through the Bible, you'll see the word blessed used automatically from the get-go. The Lord blesses the fish of the sea. The Lord blesses the animals and commands them to, to, to go into the area that He has formed for them to fill. He's blessed them and He's commissioned them. And then in Genesis 1.28, He creates man in His image. Male and female, he created them, and it says that he blessed them. And he called them and commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to have dominion over the creatures of the earth and the fish in the sea. So from the very beginning, before the fall, the understanding of what it means to be blessed 
is connected to living consistently with the wise words of God. To be blessed is related to living how the Lord has called us to live in intimacy and connection to Him. We cannot understand true blessing apart from that very definitional understanding that it's rooted in a wise living, abiding in the commanded Word of God. As you keep reading, we get to Genesis 12 and we read about Abraham. And Abraham is blessed of God. He's blessed by God. And the Lord honors him and blesses him and says, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, through your descendants. Through this seed that we talked about in the book of Galatians. And if you go a couple chapters further in Genesis 14, we have this character, this high priest that comes in, this high priest of God called Melchizedek. And, and, and our own Keith Hubbard preached on this in December. You can look it up. It's on Hebrews 5, his sermon there. In Hebrews 5, they unpack this relationship and this understanding of who is this figure, this high priestly figure, that Jesus is of this priestly line. And Melchizedek comes on the scene and he blesses Abraham. And if you kept reading through Genesis, you read about 70 other specific instances or references to blessing. And if you keep going through the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, that, that phrase used repeatedly, you would read numerous reference after reference after reference about a specific people that God has chosen for his own possession, Israel. In Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses says before them, God has blessed you as a people. Among all the peoples and nations of the earth, he has blessed you. And he tells them this before they go and, and, and inherit the land that the Lord had promised to them. So you have a people that are blessed. And you keep reading through the, New, the Old Testament and again and again and again, they are blessed despite foolishness that happens in their life again and again and again. And then the people are crushed. They go off into exile. They turn their hearts from God. And the question becomes, is God done with his blessing of us? What happened to this blessing through Abraham? You come to the New Testament as they await the longed Messiah. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke begins his gospel account by speaking of Elizabeth. Elizabeth has within her womb John the Baptist, who when Mary comes close, John the Baptist jumps with excitement. Jumps with excitement. I'm, these are his legs that are moving. Like, uh, he's got 10 of them somehow. This is not anatomically correct, I don't think. But jumps. And what, is, what does Elizabeth say to Mary? She gives this very clear statement of blessing. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In Jesus' ministry, he goes out and he begins to preaching. And what's, what's he say in Matthew 5, his account? You have the Sermon on the Mount, which is earmarked from the very beginning as the blessed Beatitudes. So Jesus preaches and he goes and he lives a sinless life. And though blessed of God, what happens to him? He lays his life down and he is beaten and mocked and executed, crucified on a cross, defeats death, raises again, and he calls the apostles. And he commissions the apostles, and among of them will be Paul. And as we spent many weeks together through the book of Galatians, we see Paul mentions this blessing all through the New Testament. Over 70 different times, blessing is mentioned again and again and again. In Galatians 3.9, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the picture is you and I can get in on the blessings of God by faith in Abraham. And in Romans 4, 7 through 8, 
Paul quotes David from the Psalms. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Then Jesus' half-brother James comes along in James 1.12, and he says, as one who said his whole life has changed because he's seen the resurrected Lord. He says in James 1.12, of the one who endures temptation, the one who endures trials, even that man and woman is blessed. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when, they, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and there's blessings in almost every New Testament book mentioned to be blessed. You get to the book of Revelation, and you think, surely the blessings are done by now. And how does John begin Revelation? Revelation 1-3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And you read the account and you think, wow, those who are faithful to Christ are enduring sufferings and they're dying. And they're being martyred. And you think, there's no way those people are blessed. And you get to Revelation 14 and you think, well, I'm wrong. Revelation 14, 12 through 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then you finish the book. You get to the very last chapter of Revelation 22. Just like you began in Genesis 1, you get to the last day of your reading plan, and you think, surely I'm done with this word blessed, and you would be wrong. And we get to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13 through 15. The Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. And what about those who are not blessed? What about those who have not been hidden in Christ? Well, verse 15, he says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Revelation makes that picture very clear in this difference of those who are in Christ and forgiven and those who are not in Christ and stand according to their own deeds. So blessing in this brief survey that we take, what does it mean? Well, we can say first what it doesn't mean. What does it not mean to be blessed? Well, it does not mean that you will be perfect. Allah Adam and all the genealogies, and you read through there, and you read through the first few books of the Bible, and you think, how in the world is the Lord blessing these people? They do not deserve it. And that's part of the point of what blessing is. Because then you look at yourself in the mirror, and you think, oh, me neither. You keep going. And you think, well, it doesn't mean also that, that one won't endure trials and temptations. Read James 1, that makes it abundantly clear. Jesus, as we saw last week in Matthew 4, enduring temptation. So to be blessed doesn't mean you won't endure trials and temptations. Mary, who was blessed, well, it doesn't mean that you won't see your son executed, crucified unjustly. Jesus was blessed, and he was martyred, laying his life down as a ransom for many. In Revelation, it's abundantly clear, it doesn't mean you will not endure great suffering. So what does it mean to be blessed? It means that you will have an intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. That you will know the wisdom of His Word. You will know Him in His Word and you are hidden in Him. 
And He will never leave you and never forsake you. That is the blessing that we pray for. That's the blessing that the psalmist in Psalm 119 bases his hope in life and in seasons of near death. And that is your hope, believer. That is true blessing. Yes, there's circumstances where we say, God, thank you for your great kindness to my life. I do not deserve this sunset. Oh, you're so kind to me. But our blessing is so much deeper. Its roots go deeper than circumstances. True blessing is connected to the Torah. The word in Psalm, verse 1 and 2, we'll see this word Torah used again and again. Now, Torah means literally law or teaching, we might say. Teaching. So when you hear law, you probably bring pictures of sirens that are flashing or something that goes, in, that goes into my mind. But the law and teaching is the, it's the teaching of God. It's good and it's sweet. It's also applied to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But the Torah, the teaching of God, that is, which is synonymous with Scripture, God's given revelation for the Hebrew was sweet. It wasn't burdensome, it was sweet. The Lord God on high, Yahweh, would come and have a relationship with broken men and broken women like us. It was good to the soul. It is good to the soul. And that's what he roots his hope in. That's what he roots blessing in. Married to the goodness of Scripture, of the Word of God. We cannot trunk, we cannot cut the trunk from the torso. We know the Lord Jesus Christ through His Word. We ask for blessings through knowing and applying and living by the wise living that's available to us in the Word of God as the Holy Spirit, He empowers us to keep those things. Blessing. So when we say, Lord, will you bless me? Will you bless them? Realize what we're asking for. Definitions matter and they're sweeter than we ever realize. So let's continue on as we understand, first and foremost, that we want to believe, if we desire to have undivided hearts, we need to believe first that true blessing is available to all who will follow after the Lord, and secondly, in verses 3 and 4, that the Lord has made Himself and His precepts known in Scripture. If we desire undivided hearts, we must truly believe that the Lord has made Himself sufficiently known and His precepts known in Scripture. Verse 3, he continues on, Who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. Verse 4, Have you commanded your precepts to be kept? Or you have pre commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And once again, we're, we ask a question. As good poetry causes us to ask, How can I know the Lord? How can we know the way of the Lord? Yes, we have our conscience. We all have our conscience. And conscience, two words, con meaning with and science knowledge. So that our conscience bears witness against us, the Scriptures say in Romans. So yes, our conscience are a good way of knowing right and wrong at, at a sense, but there is a boundary to our conscience. So when we do something wrong for the first time, our conscience says, what are you doing? It's wrong and we're convicted. But by the time you get to the 400th time of doing that thing, what happens to your conscience? It goes from a shout to a faint whisper. We can dull our conscience. But how do we know the ways of the Lord? We know the ways of the Lord through Scripture. The way the Lord has revealed Himself to us in the person of Christ and the goodness of His Word. And those that deny that, that deny the Lord, Say, I don't need Him. I'm going to live by my life. I don't believe in God. 
their lives will be evident of a living contradiction because they live in the world that he creates and he sustains. Their very molecules are held together by Christ. They can deny him all they want, but this is his universe. So as an example, if they deny the Lord his revelation, they will look at the world and they will see injustice. And they will say, that is wrong. But if they deny the Lord, by what standard is it wrong? Some man-made system for a little place and period of time? Who cares? According to that worldview, we're simply stardust, purposelessly floating, bumping in to one another. Who cares? I've never weeped of, show, of seeing a piece of pollen bump into another piece of pollen. The only time I've weeped is when it gets in my eyes and I literally have tears from the reaction. But a world that cuts off the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of His Word will live in that contradiction. When that person is sinned against and offended, they will say, how dare you wrong me? By what standard of wrong and unrighteousness do they have? See, they're created in the image of God and they know it's true. When they see beauty, they know there's something more. But they're forced into a world of denying the revelation of Scripture because they deny the revealer of His Word. We can know the Lord sufficiently by His Word. This is the gift that the Lord has given to us in our lives, and to deny that will expose us to foolishness. The psalmist says of those who do no wrong, or the New American translates it, do no unrighteousness. The law of God reflects the nature of God. God didn't just say, you know what, you shouldn't lie. That would be a good one. I like that one. You know what, you shouldn't, mm, adultery, mm, yeah, okay, we'll make that wrong. That's not what the Lord did. The law reflects the character of who God is. That's why it's wrong. The law is a reflection of who God is. He's revealed himself to us in his scriptures, clear standards that he's shown us. None of us measure up, and all of us need grace, and all of us need Christ, and that's the good news. Though none of us are blameless on our own, we can know the blameless one and be made blameless by the one who's made himself known in scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the hope we stand on the goodness of the word of the Lord. He calls them precepts. I didn't count them up, but precepts is mentioned all over the place in this psalm. Psalm 119, you probably read it this week because you read through it. Psalm 119, precepts, precepts, precepts. Here's what a precept is. A precept was given and used as an application of a commanding officer that would give a precept, a binding sense of direction for the soldier under their command to obey. So in Psalm 119, when he calls his word the precepts of God. They're not given as suggestions to note. They're given as God's reflection and revelation of who He is for us to know Him and to live wisely according to Him. And that's good news for us in Christ. It's our responsibility as Christians to train up our children, to sharpen them in what it means to know the Lord in His Word. It's our calling together as adults to do the same. To help us when we're out of line with the Word of God. To lovingly steer us back correctly and, and to receive that correction when we ourselves find our lives becoming out of step with the wisdom of the Word of God. The precepts of our Lord. That's our calling likewise. To look to a world that does not know Him, that may deny Him, and to lovingly and patiently, but boldly, call them to come unto the precepts of the Lord. Their only hope the true standard of righteousness and right.
That's the good news we have to begin. If we want undivided hearts, we must not neglect this understanding. The second pillar of the undivided heart is similar, but unique. And secondly, the undivided heart is aware of potential diversions away from the Lord. Verse 5 through 8. The undivided heart, it is aware of potential diversions away from the Lord. Which means, what the Bible says is true, and therefore what it warns us about is also true. And the Scripture is filled with warnings of distractions and dangers and lions that wait to ravage us. Sin that crouches at the door seeking to devour you. Distractions are everywhere. So divided hearts, as we look five and six, divided hearts are those that have forgotten the Lord's authority. We know what undivided hearts are, so what are divided hearts? Divided hearts all share this in common. Male, female, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you live in history, 2,000 years ago or today, or 2,000 years from today. Divided hearts will share this in common in verse 5 and 6. Divided hearts are those that have forgotten the Lord's authority. When my heart is divided, it will have reflected that I have forgotten the Lord's authority. Verse 5 and 6. He cries out, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Let me read that one more time. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. The psalm writer knows that divided hearts are those that have forgotten the Lord's authority. And so what does he, what does he cry out? What is his decree? What is, he, what is his pledge to the Lord? His cry humbly out to the Lord in verse 5. O oh Lord, that my ways may be steadfast. And he uses the word ways again, this, this picture again. That my ways may be steadfast on your ways. Not just let me keep going in the same direction. I know none of us struggle with pride at all, where if we're doing something that's wrong, I know none of us say, well, forget you, I'm going in this direction. Do any of you have that struggle? Any of you wrestle with that where you know your heart's probably a little bit off and somebody calls you on it and your heart says, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but you're way wrong. And you just keep going quicker in that direction. The psalmist doesn't just pray for steadfastness. He prays for steadfastness not in his way, but in the way. The steadfastness he prays for is on the way of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the statute on the Lord. That's where he wants to be steadfast. And as that becomes my prayer more and more, and it needs to become my prayer more and more, it needs to become all of our prayers more and more. When that's really my prayer, you know what my reaction will be when a brother or sister in Christ comes to me and says, hey, Brian, I think your way is a little off here. Instead of my reaction being that, my reaction will be, thank you. Right. You can relate to that, right? That's perfect. <laughs> this is where, like, every time this has ever happened, they're going to think I'm paying you to do that. Okay, I'm not. This is amazing, though. 
the areas of our life where we truly make that our prayer. Lord, let my way be your way at the end of the day. Regardless of what rebuke or correction you need to bring into my life, let that be my way. When the church is the church, when the congregation is the congregation, does what they're supposed to do and helps us realign our ways to that direction, we won't get mad and say, I'm out of here. But instead, we'll say, thank you, will you help me get there? That's our prayer in our life. Why does he say this? He says, so that I shall not be put to shame. So the question becomes, what will put him to shame? I think the New American, the New King James, actually picked this up better than the ESV does here. What puts him to shame is that he is measured by the Word of God. That word, the canon of Scripture, the measure, the rule, the rod of Scripture is what we measure our lives by. What puts the psalm writer to shame, so, so the New American says here, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When we read the Word of God, as we pray through this psalm, by the end of 20-some weeks from now, there will be certain verses that you will read that will strike you in a convicting way personally. Totally different than the person sitting beside you or behind you. Yet the word Lord works in our hearts in those ways to where the areas of our lives that are not in line towards the way of the Lord will cause us to squirm, to feel shame when we read those scriptures. But it is not shame that leads to shame's end. It's shame that leads to what? Repentance and joy and hope because Christ is sufficient and His Word is true. That's what we stand on together that's what it means to be the congregation of Grace Bible Church. We care with one another and we love one another. And we help each other go to the Word of God even when it's tough. In Exodus 14, 14, Exodus 14, 14, Moses is standing with Israel right on the banks of the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army is encroaching foot by foot. The chariots are coming. And Moses says to Israel, the Lord will fight for you. You just have to be silent. That's how we're called to handle the Scripture. Look at it. Study it. Hide it in your hearts. Be silent. But the word of the Lord by the Spirit of the Lord. Strike. Mend. Weave. And shape us into the image of Christ. Who we truly are. Finally, as we pray, God, lead our hearts to not be divided. Empower us to fix our eyes on all your commandments, just like what the psalm writer says. As we come to verses 7 and 8, we note that undivided hearts operate on three kind of bases, three kind of phrases. This synthetic motor oil, this three parts, grace-covered, praise-fueled, practically devoted. The type of description that marks the undivided heart is these three components. Grace-covered, praise-fueled, Practically devoted. 
That's our prayer. That God would shape us as men and women, as young and old. That God would help us increasingly to understand that He calls us to be grace-covered. Look at 7 and 8. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules and I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Grace covered. I begin with the last couple words. Do not utterly forsake me. What's it mean to be a person whose heart is undivided upon the Lord? It means we will understand the last few words of verse 8. Do not utterly forsake me. I stand firm upon you right now, Lord, totally because of grace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God upon my life. The gracious gift that God has given me. So as Christians, there's initial repentance and faith where we turn by God's grace. We turn from sin and self-rule and we trust in Jesus. We look to Jesus Christ, the sinless one who laid his life down on the cross for us. Who bore our burdens on his body on the tree. And we confess him. We place our faith and trust in Him. There's saving repentance and faith, this gift of God. But then our life as Christians is marked by a repeated small r repentance and faith of a consistent growing and more and more as we get exposed to even more selfishness and sinfulness and self-rule in our lives than we ever thought we had there. We're consistently repenting and turning to Christ and trusting Christ and abiding in His Word and letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And every part of that is covered in grace. And what happens for us, what will happen in my life, even for just a second, is I stop and I say, wow, look at what I've done. Look at my life now compared to what it was. And pride pokes its head through. Old Brent pokes his head through. And you know what will come? A fall. We praise God for what He's done in our church family. The health He's instilled and how He's worked in our lives, in your life, by His Word. But all of that, by God's grace, may we never forget that it is by grace from core to Christ. Grace covered, if we want to live undivided hearts, it's praise-fueled. Do you see what the psalm writer did there? Grace covered, praise-fueled. He makes a decree. He makes a decree before God. He makes a resolve. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart. I will praise you with an upright heart. Now, I should have taken time between our services to look up the reference I was hoping to look up. But around like Psalm 120-ish or so, or, or Psalm 19, verse 120 or so, there is a spot where he gives a declaration of what this psalm is. He calls this psalm a free will offering of praise to God. The whole psalm, he titles it, he gives us an insight. This is a free will praise offering to the Lord. That is the mark of the believer. You're all looking it up right now. Stop it. Don't look it up. Just finish this with me. Text me afterwards. I'll get like 300 text messages. It'll be great. But worship and praise, we might understand it in four components. When you and I come to a right understanding of mind and of heart in these four components, it draws us, the only natural response we can do is praise the Lord. That's it. There's no other rational response we can take besides praising God with our lives and with our lips. And it's this, number one, it's understanding it really is how Stephen helps to dynamically organize our service. Number one, it's a right understanding of who God is. So he gives a call to worship and we look and we fix our eyes from our lives to the Lord. 
It's a right understanding of who God is. Secondly, it's a right understanding of who we are. It's who we are. That's His creation. He's creator, we're creation. As we look to the holiness of God, it naturally exposes sinfulness within us and our need for Him. And it goes into the third idea. When we say, woe is me, like Isaiah, then it leads us to say, oh, but Lord, look at what you have done. Look at what you've done. And look at what you're doing. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you're working. And then it leads us to the fourth component, which is, this is now what I'm supposed to do. With my life and with my lips. And that's praise. Praise. Praise in storms. Praise in victory. Praise in all the circumstances we're going to read through Psalm 119. Praise you. Praise you. That's our only rational response. And that's the gift that God gives us. Grace covered, praise fueled, practically devoted. Practically devoted. What jump starts his praise? What jump starts his praise? He says, When I learn your righteous statutes, your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. When I learn, I will keep. What drives him to praise is the exposure to the Word of God, the Torah, the teaching of the Lord. And it doesn't just say, when I learn, but he says what? I will keep. The Word of God demands a response. Always. 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 When I learn, I will keep. And when I keep, I am blessed. That doesn't mean I get X, Y, Z. It means I get to walk wisely in the Lord in circumstance X, Y, Z. That's true blessing. That's enduring. That's long-suffering. That is sweeter than honey. That's true beauty. You and I are beautiful in the Lord. It's the cry of the forgiven. It's the cry of the undivided heart. So would you join me this week in making that the prayer for your life? For every man, would you pray for every man in our church family? Would you pray this week, God, would you help every man in our church resolve in themselves every man in our church to resolve in themselves to be grace-covered, praise-fueled, practically devoted men for you, being and making disciples for your glory in their home and abroad. And would you pray for every single woman in our church family? Every woman. Would you pray for them? If you have it, download, download the directory. Scroll through that thing and pray for those women that you lay eyes on. And pray, God, would you help those ladies today in their circumstance that they will become grace-covered, praise-fueled, practically devoted, being and making disciples for your glory right now this week. And look at our students, our college students, and our young adults, and our, our children, and ask that the Lord would spark in them a passion and a wealth of temptations and distractions to resolve in their hearts and their lives 
to say, God, I want, regardless of what the world says, I want to truly to be undivided upon you, grace-covered, praise-fueled, practically devoted for your kingdom. Use me how you will right now as a missionary for your glory, being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Make that our prayer of our life. God, would you make us an undivided people? Amen? Amen. Amen means that's the truth or truly. Amen? Amen. By the way, the more times you start saying amen, the longer we go, the better I preach, okay? (laughs) And better doesn't mean longer, so don't ever get worried about saying amen. So what are our next steps? What are our next steps of becoming an undivided people? What's this look like in our lives? I phrased it in three questions. Number one, what areas of my life will most benefit? What areas of my life will most benefit as I fix my eyes on the Lord's commandments? So... The other way to phrase that is, in my life, what area most squirms when I look at the word of the Lord? Put a circle on that in your life and attack it this week. Not by running after it, but by running the Lord towards the Lord in it. The Lord will take care of that and work us closer to the Lord in that area. Number two, what tends to happen to my heart when I forget to pursue the Lord in His word? Every one of us fizzle differently when we're in rebellion. Some of us get get quieter, some of us get louder. Some of us go in isolation, some of us long for people. We long for substances, we learn for a host of different areas when we find ourselves forgetting to pursue the Lord and His Word. What are those? Share that with somebody close to you. Confess that not simply to the Lord, but to somebody close to you. And thirdly, how sweet is it to recall today, truly today, that the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. Did you need to hear that this morning? The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. How sweet is that to your ears? How sweet is that to your ears? Oh, it's sweet to mine. Now, as we've had this challenge to read through Psalm 119, maybe you're late to the game and that's totally fine. Our challenge for this series is to read through Psalm 119 every week and then to pray through each strophe, each portion that we're preparing to study. Now, next week, we're not going to be on bet. We're going straight to Gimel. We're going to that third portion. So I, I preach through. We'll include the link in our week to week. But I previously preached through this next verses, 9 through 16. We'll link that on there. As you pray through that, and we prepare to come to Gimel, as you begin to pray through those verses, we're going to see in God's grace a psalm writer who believes that he has been planted on this, Lord as a, on this world as a sojourner as a pilgrim. We're going to understand what it means to pray and to persevere like pilgrims for the glory of God in this world. It's an unbelievable text. It's a beautiful letter. But before we get there, this word needs a response. So would you stand with me as we sing and worship to our great King?